This is a Broad Pods production. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is Broad Radio. For you, by you. Broad Radio. Here for more. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio on the go. This week it's an absolute cracker of a podcast because it was a cracker of a show. Three incredibly fierce, inspirational and brilliant creative women joining Joe and Winnetha Bonnie as her co-host. First of all, Kathy Lett. She is a worldwide best-selling author. She talks about all the different stages of women's life, and she is the queen of the one-liners. Keep an eye out for that. Then one of our favourite Aussie comedians, Steph Tisdale, joins us to talk about how she manages her anxiety and what comedy means to her. And the final guest is Jane Hutchin. She's a journalist and an author of a book that is designed to help us all learn how to communicate and converse better. Some good tips there for us as well. Here's Jo and her co-host, Winnetha Bonnie. Hello and welcome to Broad Radio. I'm Jo Stanley and I'm so thrilled that today I'm welcoming for the first time as co-host, Winnetha Bonnie. Hi there, Winnie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Oh my God, you're adorable. <laughs> I'm beside myself. Um, I've become quite obsessed with you. You are one of Australia's foremost thought leaders in inclusion and diversity. I discovered mm. you on Media Diversity Australia. I consider it one of my one of the best things to come out of broad radio that I've Aww, met you. Thank you, gorgeous. Oh, and what about the fact that we just discovered yeah. that we have exactly the same birth date? I know. That is so crazy because we've had a couple of conversations, but we only just realized today. But, you know, it was one of those yeah. moments where you, I, I was trying to get a sense of because you're yep. a bit younger than me yep. by about a decade and a half. <laughs> uh, and I like to get a sense of people's history to understand if we have cultural references yep. that are the same or different. And I say, how old are you? And you tell me you, you, you're turning 30. Eight, but 39 this 39 year. Yeah. in July and you just yeah. dropped that and I was yeah. like yeah what date <laughs> yeah. and you've gone sixth I'm like oh my god what the hell exact same birthday when yeah. does that ever happen yep. yeah. and tell me a little bit about your family uh so my parents are Tamil Sri Lankan mm-hmm. uh I have a brother and a sister uh I would say my family are 
have their own kind of like subculture and then there's me <laughs> over here somewhere yes I kind of relate to that so, yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah so my parents actually migrated from Sri Lanka to England and then from England to Australia so I was actually born in England okay. um, but my ancestral roots are Tamil Sri Lankan so yeah that's my family I think to be a thought leader mm. you need to be a little bit different from oh. your family. <laughs> yeah. My dad always says to me that your wiring is <laughs> slightly different. <laughs> There's something with your wiring. And I was like, I don't know. I was just born this way. You should know. You produce me. Yeah. Um, does that make yeah. you feel at times like it's you struggle to connect with your family? Because that's how yeah. black sheep, the, yeah. the whole notion of being a black sheep yeah. of the family yeah. comes from yeah. where you go, Ugh, I don't yeah. belong here. I don't feel yeah. like yeah. I fit. Yeah, yeah, which is really interesting because my whole work is around belonging. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. So people always assume that that work really stemmed from the workplace. But for me, it actually goes a lot more deeper than that. I have a wonderful family, a beautiful family. We, of course, drive each other nuts, you know, from time to time. But I think for me, there was something really fundamentally different about the wiring in my DNA. Uh, I was always at a young age asking a lot of questions about life and death and um, the existence of the human race and was very much a person that just kept asking a lot of questions. You know, I never accepted a truth as a single truth. And particularly when you come from a, a BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, people of colour family, it's we don't ask questions. We just have conversations. And so for me, I was, you know, because I ask a lot of questions, felt really, you know, different to everyone else you know so I have different set of values different belief system different way of operating different view of I think everything in life so yeah and that's led to your work in diversity and inclusion which we're going to hear a little bit more about in just a minute so Winnie I just read you (laughs) uh were quoted in a story on PBS about actually the NFL Yes. So this is an American website about a story that was um, unfolding in that sport over there. But you said something really interesting with regard to, um, I guess, uh, diversity and inclusion in in organisations. You said it's actually irresponsible to bring people through the recruitment pool, particularly people that have experienced discrimination, to actually bring them into the organisation if you don't have a culture you have to make sure it's psychologically safe. Mm. What does psychological safety mean? Psychological safety is really about the environment of a place and it really is about culture. So I guess in when you think about culture in terms of race, you know, there are cultures where if you said something, it would be appropriate and respectful and other cultures where if you said the exact same thing, it would be deemed as disrespectful. And so when it comes to organizations as well, it's people that set the culture and they set the tone of what is acceptable and not acceptable. And that's in terms of language, communication and behavior and also perceptions and beliefs and values too, right? And so when it comes to psychological safety, that's what it is. It's about how are we developing our people to really set the tone of what is acceptable? And because culture is defined as not what is the majority, of values and beliefs and actions, but by what a company is willing to tolerate. So when it comes to psychological safety, it's really around, if I come into and work in your workplace, if I come into work into at Broad Radio, am I going to be discriminated against? Am I, or am I going to be accepted? Am I going to be celebrated? Am I 
Do I feel safe enough to voice an opinion about something? Do I feel safe to disagree with a viewpoint or uh, a direction that you want to take the show in? Can I voice that opinion? Can I share that? Um, I think everyone would have been in environments where we felt like if we said something, we would be shamed. Oh, yes. Right. Or we would mm. be made to feel, feel guilty, mm. guilty about that. And so that's essentially what psychological safety is. There's lots of great material um, and books written on the topic. And uh, so when it comes to the organization, what we need to be doing is making sure that you know, if someone was to come into our place and we were to welcome them as guests into our house, if we knew the roof was going to collapse on them and potentially hurt or harm them, would we ask them? to come into our home and welcome them into our home. And it's exactly the same with the organization as mm. well. So there's absolutely no point of bringing people from underrepresented communities into your workplace if they're just going to leave because the place is uh, doesn't have their uh, their intentions at heart. Doesn't Right. So it's not yeah. about – so I, you're referring to the fact that, that lots of organisations are ticking a box around mm. having a pathway and knowing that we have mm. to have a certain amount of underrepresented people here, yep. but then they're not providing a safe environment for them. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So they're getting the order mixed around. Right. Ah, yes. Yeah. So you have to make it welcoming. Mm. Yep. Make sure the culture is right. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah. I mean, it's sort of happening at the same time, I assume. Yes. Yeah. It's the chicken or the egg, right? Mm, I love it. It's, it's such a uh, – this is why you're a thought leader. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It's so awesome to have you with us here today, Winnie. I really am pleased that you're here. Let's get to our first guest. Uh, you know, I have to say one of the bios that I read for our next guest described her as an outspoken comedy writer. And I've got to say that my favorite kinds of women are outspoken. So (laughs) she is a worldwide bestseller and uh, has been a writer pretty much her entire life. Started at 17. How amazing. Welcome, Kathy Lett. Hello. Hello. I am abroad too. So I'm so happy to be, you know, having girl talk. Isn't that funny around the word broad? I've had a few people Maybe an older generation of women who've been quite offended by that word. Oh no, no! Broad was always a was always an accolade. I mean, you know, it's Bette Davis and it's Barbara Stanwyck and it's Catherine Hepburn and it's women who can shoot from the lip with a lethal one-liner. Because <laughs> even though men are physically stronger than than women, obviously, we do have this other great skill: is that we're verbally dexterous. We use, on average, about. 350 more words in our daily vocabulary than men do. So I call it the black belt and tongue foo. And, you know, if... if, I love it. Yeah, and if a man is bullying you in some way, if you can belittle him with a good good, um, quip and give him kind of quiplash and people laugh at him, you take away all of his power. So it's a skill that women should, you know, we should work on. I always say to girls when they're going out at night, you know, they're all dressed up, but they're underdressed unless they have a couple of really good one-liners tucked up their trouser leg. That is, you are the queen That's of one-liners, I have to say, Kathy. <laughs> reading, reading your books, and I love your latest book, and I'll get you to um, talk about it in just a moment. But I imagine your writing process because you just have one-liner mm. after one-liner, and <laughs> you know, you hear about writers and how it's a real toil to produce a book but I hope that yours is a lot more energetic and you know you're laughing at your own jokes as you're writing them is that a bad thing to say that I laugh at my own jokes I I do I hope you do you deserve to (laughs) 
<laughs> I try to amuse myself, you know, because when you're writing a novel, you, you're sitting alone yeah. for you know years, and so if you don't, if it don't, if you don't make it fun, I, I don't see the point of doing anything that's not a little bit fun. Um, and of course, I only write because it's cheaper than therapy. So otherwise, <laughs> I'd be paying some guy in Couch Canyon, making him laugh and paying for the pleasure. So, yeah. And I think if I have any gift at all as a writer, it's um, putting into words what women are thinking, but not necessarily saying out loud. And also writing down the way women talk when there's no men around, because women are funny. It's a coping strategy for us you know <clears throat> when you go on a girl's night out you have to be hospitalized from hilarity and our humor is quite different to male humor like my male friends are very funny but they tend to, to sort of tell set jokes whereas women never do that when we get together we strip off to our emotional underwear in about 3.6 seconds and a psychological strip tease that reveals all it's very candid it's very cathartic it's very self-deprecating um, and it's just hilarious. And I don't know why some men continue to say that women aren't funny. And I'm published in about 17 languages now, so I've been on a lot of book tours around the world. And invariably, some male journalists will say to me, oh, you know, you say you write funny books, but women aren't funny. And I think, why oh. do some men still say that? Like every time you watch a TV comedy panel show, there'll be all the blokes and one token female. Like we're up, we're up shit creek without a panel. We need mm -hmm. our own show. <laughs> but I also think that some men are just terrified what it is women are being funny about. I think they presume we spend the entire time talking about the length of their members, you know, which is not true because we also talk about the width, you know, which after <laughs> is much, much more important. And it's not just me imagining that women are funny. Anthropologists say that women in all cultures on the planet laugh more often than men, especially in all female groups. So I think it's a strategy for coping, you know. If you can, when you laugh at something, it's like strapping a giant shock absorber to your brain. Um, and, and you just know, just knowing you're not alone, just being able to share that experience with others and laugh about it um, is a way that we, we survive the patriarchy, I think. Mm. And and just on that note, I'd really love for you to um, talk a little bit about your new book. And you mentioned that you, with the writing process, it's about um, making it fun. So I'd love to hear in the process of writing this new book, what are some of the fun things right. that you did? Oh, okay. Well, I, I have to wait and see. I'm building. I have to see what I'm building up ahead of steam about. And what was <laughs> making me furious is now at the moment is ageism. Uh -huh. because I think women suffer from facial prejudice. We get judged on our looks in a way that men don't. You know, men my age are described as a silver fox or a man of experience, mm. whereas I'm dismissed as an old hag, an old bag and a chook. You know, I get put out to sexual pasture when I think I'm kind of in my 63, as I prefer to call it. 63. Um, and, and, you know, you never hear a man described as mutton dressed as ram, do you, ever? It's just women constantly judged for how wrinkly we are, how you can, I'm not supposed to be able to wish. I have to cover my arms, I have to cover my chest, I can't wear a miniskirt. I mean, it's like, it's like living under the Taliban. I mean, why? So I'm, I was exercised about all of that and I wanted to invent a new genre too because when I, when I was younger, I kind of invented chick lit. I hate that term, don't you? I mean, it's yeah. so demeaning let's call it clit lit at least you know <laughs> sure but i sort of invented that with puberty blues and girls night out and llama parlor yeah there we are oh my god yeah. look, at, look at you you're beautiful that's uh, you well, with your co-writer of puberty yeah. blues but look that's at you right. fresh faced 17 year old kathy <laughs> and then then i kind of invented mummy lit with fetal attraction and mad cows 
and nip lip with nip and tuck. But I thought, what is the genre for women my age now? Whenever I read a book about a woman who's in her 60s, she, she invariably wilts away with loneliness and, and <laughs> dies of despair in some little flat and gets eaten by her cats. Now, I don't know any women like that. All no. the women I know, my friends, are funny, feisty, fabulous, frank. They're swinging off a chandelier with a toy boy between their teeth. But I never see that reflected in literature. So I've come up with a new genre, Yes, a new genre for women of my age called I Don't Give a Shit Lit. <laughs> it's good, isn't it? It's fantastic. I know, <laughs> right? So, I mean, the way this new... so. The way this new book begins is that Gwen, who's 60, in her 60s, she's a teacher. She's driving to school and she hears on the radio that a man's been taken by a great white shark and she knows it's where her husband swims every day. So she rushes to the beach and as she just, she realises it is her husband who's missing and just as she's sort of starting to grieve, another woman arrives, 50-year-old jazz singer, Tish, on a motorbike and she thinks it's her husband. So they very quickly realise they're married to a bigamist and he's got all of their money. So it then becomes an odd couple comedy where they buddy up to chase their money around the world. And, I mean, I wanted to, first of all, I wanted to celebrate female friendship because I think women are each other's human wonder bras, uplifting, supportive and making each other look bigger and better. I mean, you two are each other's human wonder bras already Yes, on day one. It's you know? true. <laughs> It's true. Yeah. And so I really wanted to big up female friendship. I also wanted to write something really funny because have we ever needed a laugh more? Two years of yeah. pandemic, you know, and the floods and now rootin' tootin' shootin' pootin' with his finger on the nuclear trigger. I mean, they say laughter's the best medicine. It's about the only medicine we've really got right now. So I wanted to be funny. And I also wanted to take my readers on an adventure because we haven't been able to travel. And because I have a a travel column in the British papers called Adventure Before Dementia, Carpe the Hell Out of DM. I have been to a lot of amazing places. You know, I've climbed a volcano in Iceland and I've hot air ballooned over the Serengeti. And I thought, how lovely if I can take my readers with me, like armchair adventure. Mm. And I wanted to address this ageism t topic because, the, I mean, you girls are too young to know, but what, okay, I think for women, life is in two acts. The trick is surviving the interval, which is the menopause, which mm. is awful. You know, you sweat so much, it's like the Gestapo's trying to get a confession out of you. But on the other side of that, I think it's the best time of a woman's life, I promise you. You know, first of all, um, no period cramps, no pregnancy scares. Your kids are older, so you can kind of cut the psychological umbilical cord. And now with the rocket fuel of HRT, we've got energy and 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 sass and we and the other thing that happens as you age for women is that your estrogen goes down and your testosterone comes up mm. so you get a little bit more bolshy a little <laughs> bit more selfish a little bit more like a bloke basically <laughs> and of course what happens to men is the opposite as they age their testosterone comes down and their estrogen comes up which is why you know they start crying in the movies and stuff like that <laughs> but it's a real I know. It's a real problem in, in, in society. Like the majority of divorces now are initiated by women mm -hmm. and the two peak times is when the last child finishes school and when the husband retires. Because, you know, first of all, marriages last so long. You know, from honeymoon to tomb can be like 70 mm -hmm. to 80 years, which mm -hmm. is a long time to find, for someone to find your anecdotes interesting. <laughs> um, and, 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 and also we want different things. So women... You know, men often when they retire, they're like, oh, I just want to stay at home and nest. And women are like, I've nested. I've butted 4,000 acres of toast 
you know, I've cooked four million flocks of chickens and schools of salmon. I just want to climb Everest and go down the Amazon. So there is a real dichotomy in what older um, Australians want, which is something we haven't really addressed. Mm. But what I say in my novels, what I'm saying particularly in HRT, Husband Replacement Therapy, and this one, um, Till Death or Little Light Maiming, Do Us Part, I'm saying to women, have a great second act. Yes. Go forth and be fabulous and don't feel guilty about it. Don't let your guilt gland throb because, you know, mothers have paid our dues. You know? Yeah, oh, my God. You are allowed to put yourself first for the yes. first time in your life. Oh, Kathy, so that's really my message. It's, you know, you, you're, you're saying so many things very articulately <laughs> that all of us have felt and wanted to say in many different ways. I, I agree. I've said it. It seems to be a common theme, and I've said it many times mm-hmm. on broad radio, that as I turn 50 this year, I really have developed my I don't give a shit muscle, mm-hmm. um, and right. it's getting stronger and stronger. I didn't realise maybe it's go, it coincides with more testosterone. I love this theory. Yeah. But yeah. Um, tell us... Uh, you know, have you got survival tips for menopause? Um, drink a lot of uh, Chardonnay and eat a lot of. <laughs> they always say, "Oh, you shouldn't do that during the menopause." Have you? Have you ever needed Chardonnay and chocolate more? <laughs> you know, you're in hormonal upheaval. I mean, I always think all the all the things women go through. You know, we we've got a lot to whinge about, although we don't whinge much. I mean, my only motto is laugh and the world laughs with you, cry and you get salt and champers. But, you know, we still don't have equal pay. Plus we're getting concussion hitting our head on the glass ceiling and we're supposed to clean it while we're up there. Um, you know, and then we've got the second glass ceiling at home in, in that women, even though we make up 50% of the workforce, are still doing about 99.9% of all the housework and childcare. And then we're also the butt of God's biological joke because mm. you think of all the things we go through from when you're a teenager and you first get taken hostage by your hormones once a month and then there's pregnancy where everything swells to sumo wrestler proportions, then there's childbirth where you stretch your birth canal the customary what? Five kilometres? Six? <laughs> About then there's that, yes. mastitis. <laughs> then there's the menopause. And then just when everything goes quiet, do you know what happens? I better tell you now. Oh. You grow a beard. Oh, my God. I'm already there. Be- <laughs> right? I could make a macrame hanging basket arrangement. I'm like, why? Why? So, I mean, yeah, I think the best way to get through the menopause besides, you know, Chardonnay and champagne and chocolate is to laugh with your girlfriends mm. and just... Mm. See your, see your human wonder bras as much as possible. Go out, cackle like kookaburras and, you know, and if you need to get a husbandectomy, don't put it off. Just do it. You know, you, you, you can have a brilliant second act and all our lives we're brought up as women to be decorative and demure, you know, especially in my generation. We were like human handbags draped over the arm of some, you know, surfy god. And I don't think women really come into their true selves until they're postmenopause and they're no longer, you know, in, in mummy mode and being constantly, you know, trying to make everyone's lives better. And it's, and it's a joy to see your true nature coming to the fore. So, yes, I said earlier, just go forth and be fabulous. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we will. Thank you so much, Cathy. I really loved the book. I loved that it's two women who are polar opposites who kind of get forced <laughs> together and end up really seeing just the, the the joy in each other, which I think is so true in female friendships that you just go, oh, we're so different, but we're so <laughs> together as yeah. well human wonder yeah. bras as we are for each other do head out and and get the book and also 
check out Kathy's back catalogue, which is mm. unbelievable. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us and for your oh, incredible stirring words. It's what we needed today. Yeah. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm sorry I talk, if I talk too much. I've had I've had two coffees, so I'm a little bit like they don't call me the mouth from the south for nothing. What can I say? No. <laughs> How do you go in the UK? I know that you've been living there for a long time. Do they still regard you as Australian? Oh yes, but you can get away with a lot. I spent, I'm spending about six months in each hemisphere now. Six months at home, six months there. But you can get away with a lot there because um, they just think she couldn't help it. So I'm incredibly <laughs> irreverent irreverent and rude and stir things up constantly and they haven't put me in the tower yet so <laughs> but they, it's going well beautiful thank you so much oh, kathy Lett. it was an absolute joy thank you Lots thank you love, for the laughter love, the show. love being <laughs> love being abroad and you know here's to here's to swing off a chandelier together with a cocktail between our teeth. oh my god absolutely <laughs> i am there yes let's do it together thanks kathy you take care bye bye, bye now it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Oh my gosh, I hope you're not exhausted by that. What an amazing amount of energy and yeah. so funny. <laughs> I think my cheeks are a little bit sore actually, but just that little segment there, there was so much in that uh, in terms of what she shared about ageism, menopause, female relationships. Um, yeah, just so much wisdom and insights and also laughter yeah. in that yeah. interview. Yeah. Well, let's keep the funny women coming because honestly, <laughs> what a morning. We have one of Australia's best comedians and I have to say someone who is really deservedly riding high at the moment. I have seen her already this week on Q&A, on the gala. She's on Matelli, perhaps more than anyone else right now. Steph Tisdell, well, good morning. G'day, how are you doing? Oh, babe, congratulations on just the week you've had. A couple of massive gigs there. Oh, uh, I know. It's weird. I don't know if this happens with um with, with you guys. I don't know if you can relate to this, but the bigger or the more successful the week is, the more anxious I feel generally. Mm. Yeah. I, is that relatable? It is entirely relatable, but also I, I have seen you say that a few times on your Insta this week, and yeah. I... I really hope for you that you're able to enjoy what's going on as well. I know, me too. By the way, can I just can I just address why I am sitting in my car? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> 
So, okay, so you would have seen, uh, and it's very frustrating, but um, my bird is everywhere. If you've been on my Instagram, my bird is everywhere. Well, he's just woken up. <laughs> and I went up there before and he was in a mood and he was just flying onto I couldn't get away from him. And he screams and wants attention. And I was like, I can't. This is too distracting. I can't be having a conversation with this going on. Ridiculous. You were telling us about your bird during the sound check. He's been very naughty lately. <sighs> What's his name, firstly? His name is Michael Parkinson or Parky for short. <laughs> And he seems to have quite the presence in your house. Oh, my God. He is the house. He's every – that bird – I travel the country with that bird. I'm buying a big car just so I can more easily <laughs> travel with him. I'm from Brisbane, so I've got a cage in the back. We travel all around the place, and um, he loves it. He's my little road trip bird. He oh, absolutely gorgeous. loves it. Can I ask about your anxiety, though? And you've got Parky to help you with it. But – and. I, I'm someone who gets extremely anxious, particularly when I have the big gigs. Um, and you, you're like, I've asked for this in my life and now it's come and I don't know actually how to handle it. What are your processes? How are you managing that anxiety? Uh, I'm not, if I'm honest. Oh, um, <laughs> no, I mean, like, the reality is, like, I think um, it, it always gets exacerbated sort of when uh, I've been working a lot or I'm a bit, run down or whatever and I think that that's the that's the situation I'm in right now um and I want to take care of it better I think mm. like for me the more authentic and honest I can be about every element of who I am that's what makes me feel um the best you know that's how I know that I'm doing the best that I can and that nothing is for show and that I don't have to pretend to be something um so, like, my show that I'm doing for the Melbourne Comedy Festival, for example, is all about authenticity. It's about taking away the plans. It's about being present. All of the things that I need to do that help me with my anxiety, especially the, the idea of being present and connecting and, you know, feeling an intimate connection with a group of strangers. Do you know what I mean? Mm. I'm a very loving and affectionate person and um, I think because I've been away from home and my, my familiar surroundings for it'll be – Almost seven months soon, I get to really show that through comedy. So that's – comedy is the way that I deal with my anxiety, I guess. Mm -hmm. And on that note, uh, the person that we had before, Kathy, she talked about how the writing process was kind of like her, her therapy. Um, and you've touched on that uh, as well. So how has the, the creation process of putting your sets and your shows together help? Um, has that been therapy for you and, and how has that helped you and your in your journey this is actually such a different show um and it's it's sort of the first time that i've done something that is as free as this where i actually don't have any material it's all improvised um plus i interview somebody on stage but the whole point is that um especially during COVID, i just feel like everything that we saw was just uh very curated version of what people wanted to see you know I think it was really hard to which is basically just me in the rawest version I can be um but also I, I so half of the show is interviewing an audience member because I think we just like we put this undue like um gravitas to people who have a public profile when 
with just normal people, do you know what I mean? And, and like, people can forget just how special their stories are because you only tell the same group of people, whereas if you've got this opportunity to have your story listened to by other people, you actually realise just how much you're doing and, and how well you're doing. So I haven't really written anything for this show, but the catharsis is being as raw as I, as I can and being okay with that, just accepting and tolerating whoever that is in that time. I've got to say, for someone who has anxiety, um, to step on the stage and be completely uh, improvising, <laughs> I mean, the thing that I do when I'm anxious around performance is that I over-engineer everything. Like mm. I make sure that it's yeah. all planned and you've thrown that out the window. So already the courage there is extraordinary, Steph. But that's the whole reason why I got into comedy. Like essentially the whole thing is that if everything's scary, then actually nothing is scary, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, mm-hmm. if it's scary to, to answer the phone, if it's scary to leave the house, then it's really not that many steps scarier to improvise a show and really just focus on being present and feeling a connection with the audience. Like, because that's that's the eventual product. Like, that's the end goal is to connect with the audience. So, you know, if everything's scary, then the process to get there is the is kind of the least scary thing because at least I'm moving in the direction of what I want. Does That's that make amazing. Sense? Yeah, yeah, no, it does. And what a quote. If everything is scary, nothing is scary. <laughs> it's really kind of blown my mind. I have to go and think about that. Um, so how do you choose the audience member that you're going to be interviewing? Puts a hand up. It could be crap. But I don't know. I don't care. <laughs> but that's the whole thing, right? Like, yeah. I just, I don't, I don't care. I, like, I'm mm. just, if I'm not having a good night, like, if I'm, if I'm not that funny that night, that's, that is what it is. At least it's, at least it's real. Like, tonight's going to be weird because between the sound check when I spoke with you guys two seconds ago and now, I um, went into the shop. I don't wear shoes ever, and I walked about twenty meters. And an Allen key went about this far into oh my, my foot. Um, oh. And then it was bleeding everywhere in the shop. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to be – I know. I don't even know how it happened. So I'm going to be, like, limping around the joint, like, whatever, who cares? Oh, my God. <laughs> are you are, are you all right? I feel bad that you're speaking with us right now with a – you might be bleeding out as you're speaking to us. <laughs> no. It's all good. I had a tetanus shot about six weeks ago. I'm all good. <laughs> Like I know, I know it's really silly. And I know it doesn't. Like I sound oddly serious about it, and it's weird. Comedy is the thing that makes me most serious in the world. Talking about it, like talking about anything else, I'll be quite silly. But talking about comedy makes me very serious because um, I feel like it's such a a very it's a very specific kind of art form. Like I write as well, and I act as well, and like I feel like I'm a storyteller through and through. But there's something about comedy that is so transactional with the audience in a really, really, really immediate way. Doing it with all the safety nets removed is really exciting for me, even if it isn't the best version of it that it could be. Mm. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, we'll see what audiences think. I hope they like it. But um, (laughs) I I think what a lot of people, um, so for myself, like what a lot of people don't know is that uh, I have a dance background. So I guess from a performance perspective, I can – definitely connect with um, having a choreographed really tight piece, but then also just, you know, freestyling and and go, uh, going on that journey. 
So really interested to hear, you know, what has been the thing that's caught you by surprise in this journey of of being a comedian and and sharing your messages uh, to the world through through comedy? Um, I think the weirdest thing and the reason why I ended up because I kind of accidentally fell into it. Um, and I think the weirdest thing is that if you want to really connect with the audience, you have to remember. Like, people are always like, oh, but what if you're not funny? I'm so scared of it. And I go, no, no, no. It's not about that. Like, you're giving the audience a gift. Even when you're not good, you're still removing them from their, like, from their process, their mind, whatever it is, wherever they're at, you're removing them from that just for a small time. Like, you're giving them respite. And so if you walk out with this thought of how generous and loving you feel towards your audience, it completely changes it. But what I'm always surprised by is, like, the intimacy in the total lack of intimacy that is performing, like it's the most intimate thing you'll ever do, the most vulnerable thing you'll ever do in like the least intimate setting. <laughs> but afterwards people walk out like they like they know you mm-hmm. and you feel like you know them, but as a conglomerate, like you feel like you're like, I know that audience, but it's different to how they look at you. I, I just find it really, yeah, the intimacy of it, I think, the the – the bonds, the the secrets, I don't know, like it's it's a moment that's only shared with those people and it becomes this this secret little bond or something. I don't know how to describe what I mean, but I was really surprised by that. Yeah, I mean, you are, by nature of being on stage, you're sharing a part of yourself and I always have felt like there's uh, an agreement between audience and performer because both people are there to have the best time possible um, and so there has to be an agreement that yes audience will support you and go with you and you know do their best to, they want you to succeed and vice versa you want to I don't know give as much of yourself that you feel safe to do so and often unsafe you do it in unsafe ways as well by surprise don't you it's kind of the whole thing it's like it's why I love live performance and it's it's so different like you can say the same bit of material in 10 different ways and, and 10 different audiences will feel it in 10 different ways. And it's just, yeah, you've got to make it feel like a symbiotic relationship, mm. like you're there for each other, you're in it together. And um, I, I really love it. I, I love just, I just love connecting with people like that, you know, just like mm. looking out into the crowd and going, man, there's so many different stories in this room and mm. we're all just smashing together in this weird little thing called life and you know this will never happen again we're just by chance all in the same room together and and what a cool energy like what a cool thing that we get to create different energies every night and do with them what happens which is also again the reason why I love that it's um off the cuff as well because it gets to be just ours like each Mm. night just me and the audience does that make sense yes yeah yeah intimacy yeah you know, you're absolutely right too that every single person brings their own story. It was the thing that I loved most about being on radio when you'd have a listener call and share their stories and that's something that I, yeah, my gosh, I can't wait till we have proper talk back on broad radio. You also, I think, are the master of a spoonful of sugar in that you bring such important uh, conversations in your comedy and I'm thinking particularly of the top of the gala where you explained how important an acknowledgement of country is and you reminded us of the history of genocide in this country 
all wrapped up in this beautiful comedy and this very clever, um, you know, the jokes around it, you know, well, they're not jokes, but the, it, you're using, I guess, lots of different parts of your craft. Have you ever had negative responses around those sorts of conversations that you bring to your comedy? Absolutely, oh. without a doubt. Um, from both sides of the coin, I get a lot of racism, but I also get um, a lot of uh, feedback from my own community. Um, and, uh, look, I, I think it's one of those things that it's, it's really bizarre to know how to kind of navigate this space because in so many ways pursuing the the mainstream pursuing this the platform to speak out and to make a difference for my people in a lot of ways kind of disconnects me from my community if that makes sense like you know it's for example i've been on the road now for seven months at the moment but i've been i'm always so busy i haven't been on country for a long time there are a lot of gaps in my own cultural knowledge there are a lot of you know things that i would like to know that i don't have the time to know um but that i also have you know fears about knowing and there's there's these gaps in my knowledge that i know are related back to the original traumas you know the original intergenerational traumas um but it's it's quite a bizarre thing because i think you can get very used to what your audience looks like and my audiences that i am used to performing for i do tend to have a quite a left-leaning um inner city audiences right and i think because of that there are choices that i make on stage that are very nuanced um where it's kind of this meta you know using using very underhanded or using I don't know how to describe it, but there are things that are kind of layered jokes that I think you make for the audience and you hope that they're reading the subtext that actually on the surface can read very differently. Um, and I've had backlash from both sides um, about that. Mm. And it's it's difficult because I think comedy, you can't tell somebody what your intention is. I think in long-form narrative – we have the space to kind of say or to, you know, build out a story that really builds in all of those intentions and they're, they're inbuilt into our characters and there's so many more moving parts. But when it's comedy, it's kind of like you have, you know, the shortest amount of time to get to as many laughs as you can. And so you have to trust that your audience will put certain pieces together, um, which they do most of the time. But there is that fear that when things are in that public space, um, if it's misunderstood by a couple of people, there's a real fear that that can actually uh, undermine the original message. You know what I mean? But mm. I I like comedy, and I think I'm coming towards the end of my, my comedy career for a little bit of time because of those things. I think I want to take some time yeah, right. off and, and reflect mm -hmm. and make sure that I'm doing the right thing by my people and, mm. you know, reconnect and, and really connect in the way that I'd like to with my own community and do some more sort of on-the-ground work um but comedy is interesting because i think it's it's the only it's the only art form right where it's instantaneous and it answers that question like what's in it for me it's like well, what's in it for you as a laugh <laughs> yes. yeah you know yeah. so it's like you're immediately giving somebody the answer to well, why would i educate myself well you have a laugh you know and it's mm -hmm. like you have to measure it out and it's so the amount of work that goes into writing a bit that is just the right amount of educational and just the right amount of um, 
of funny yeah, is absolutely. really, really, really hard, but I've definitely made missteps that I've apologised for in the past and it's mm-hmm. just now trying to figure out how to how to overcome that um, mm-hmm. when you don't have the the benefit of saying, but this is what I meant. Yeah. yeah. So, but, yeah. Well, but Steph, no wonder you have so much anxiety around this incredible yeah. time of your life and yeah. your career because you are such a deep thinker. You have so much intellect behind the jokes and the craft that you're pulling together and um, I want to say thanks. I think you're doing an incredible job and be buoyed by the fact that we believe in you and we, your voice is very, very important, okay? Thank you. That actually, that actually means the world because it is, it is tough out there sometimes, so thank it, you. Yeah, yeah, it is yeah. tough and, you, and you're wearing a lot. You're carrying a lot there. So mm. I really want to encourage you and, and lift you up and mm. just keep going, sister. Yeah. Um, Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. If I was looking at you, fella, look just sitting there with your, your blonde hair and your curly hair. we got the same hair there too, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so do go and see the show, Baby Beryl. It's on at the Comedy Festival. And it's I'm not imagining... as serious as I was right now, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm guessing that you are touring this as well after the Comedy yep. Festival in Melbourne finishes. So do check mm-hmm. it out and go to Steph's website for all of those details. Um, and maybe you might put your hand up to be interviewed by her if you are brave enough. I'm Ooh. sure you're very kind to your audience when you do that um steph thanks so much it's just been a joy to have you on broad radio thanks so much guys have a beautiful day broad radio talking inspo we love info we need and sharing more of us watch and listen live every tuesday 9 a.m australian eastern daylight savings time at broadradio.com.au or find us on facebook twitter youtube and linkedin at broad radio oz Talk to us live. Call on 1300 8 Broad. Catch up on demand anytime, anywhere, every time, everywhere. On the train, we'll be here. 2 a.m. existential crisis? We've got you covered. Broad Radio. Here for more. My gosh, what a show full of rich conversations yeah. and incredible women. And as always, we're running late, Winnie. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to Broad Radio. We run late because there's so much <laughs> to say and hear. But let's get into the next incredible guest yes. that we have. Yes. She spent nearly a decade interviewing some of the most fascinating people in the world on ABC's One Plus One. She's an author and a performer, Jane Hutchin. Good morning. Hey, how are you both? Lovely to see you. Oh, so delightful to have you on the show. Um, There's so much to ask you, but you are an interviewer yourself, (laughs) a very, very seasoned one. How is it being on the other side and being interviewed? It's absolutely lovely. It's something (laughs) that I need a lot of practice at. So the more I do it, the better I get. And, you know, being an interviewer for me isn't, I I don't know about you guys, but it's not about... um, what can I pick up that's wrong or bad in the way people ask questions? It's kind of a, I think it's a way of living and Mm -hmm. it's how I've always been. So I've always been super curious. And I think when you segue that into being a professional interviewer, you get this sense that you can use that. And that's exactly why I wrote rebel talk this book about conversation you can use all the skills that you gain as a professional interviewer to help kind of like a little boiling can for your regular everyday conversation so that's what I love about it and just because I don't do interviews anymore on the telly I'm still an interviewer absolutely Mm. so are we particularly bad at having conversations well 
not everybody. I, I feel a little bit down this morning because I've been reading some of the things that, that have been going on on Twitter since, um, I guess, since the election was called. And I feel really sad when people denigrate and belittle public figures and journalists because I don't think that goes with anyone's job description. I think feedback is important but pulling someone down because of the way they look or the fact that you don't agree with their opinion I think is a really hard and it's a nasty thing to do and many of us who regard ourselves as being progressive and um, liberal with a small l if you like are the people that are doing that so that part of the public discussion makes me feel a bit sad but that's why I kind of like to talk about regular conversations because I think we all have to kind of consider what we say. Mm -hmm. And I try, for example, publicly not to, um, to always think about my conversations being productive and proactive. I think that's really important. And if I have kind of bad views about something, I try to sort of really think about how did I come to get that opinion and is there another way I can look at it? And usually by the time I've got to that step, I've already changed my mindset about what it was that was, um, you know, getting me down or making me feel like the world was this very pessimistic, harsh place. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really interesting what you said about uh, the conversations that you're seeing on, on social media. Uh, mm -hmm. In my work as a diversity and inclusion expert, uh, one of the conversations that we have is around shaming and, and cancel culture. And I'd really yeah. love to hear your views around, because obviously when we have conversations, you know, words are, are coming out of our mouth, but it's perhaps emotions or beliefs that are driving uh, the choice around which words to use or, and in the context of using those words. So in terms of people having conversations that are, have that real sort of shaming or cancel culture kind of feel to it, what do you think is really driving that kind of communication? What do you think is sitting underneath that? Well, that, that is a wonderful question. And you hit the nail on the head when you said it's about emotion. But um, who talks about emotions in public life these days? Mm -hmm. No, nobody, uh, you know, ScoMo doesn't talk about, I felt really emotional about that. It's kind of like a, a bad word to use publicly. It's like vulnerability and making mistakes and getting things wrong. We, we don't tend to use that language in a public sphere. And I think cancel culture, when people weigh in, so there's, there's I suppose you could say there's, there's political correctness, but some people who stumble into that sort of conversation don't mean to do any harm. They want to understand. And I think there's a really fine line between um, a judgment that kind of seeks to, to understand why it is. I had a big, big um, chat with a bunch of people in Canberra um, for the book talk on um, on Will, um, Will Smith and, and Chris mm. Rock and all that sort of thing and who was allowed to actually say something about that conversation. And, and my view is if you're coming from the right place, which is the intent to understand something, then everybody should be able to talk about it. I don't mean that everyone should be quoted on the front page of a newspaper, but I do think, or, you know, or necessarily interviewed on talkback radio, but, but everyone 
is allowed to have a view and everyone is allowed to talk about it. So, yeah, I think it really just goes back to this point of what is it that you are, weigh- why are you weighing in? If it's, if it's seeking to understand and almost in a sense see that other point of view, I think it's fair game. Mm-hmm. Does that sort of answer the question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And um, in your book, you've got a you've got a, a, a wonderful framework around the word rebel. I'd love to um, hear you talk just very quickly about how you came up with that with that framework. Yeah. Um, well, I sort of looked at all the interviews I'd conducted um, in my time as one plus one presenter, and those were half hour interviews. So they they were obviously planned. They they weren't just off the top of my head, but but there was a, a kind of flow to those interviews. And so I I came up with this acronym, which was a, a call to action, but also was something that could help people maybe who struggle with conversation to use as a as a tool. So R E B E L. Um, readiness is the first one engaging with empathy so again what I was talking about earlier you know connecting from a place of wanting to understand the B stands for be curious which is my all-time favorite one because it's about you know how you ask questions the second E is engaging listening and how many of us are excellent at selective listening? <laughs> Me. <laughs> what? I don't yeah, know what you're talking so about. <laughs> <laughs> and talking on top of people too, that comes into it as well. And, and the last one, L, lead the way. So that's about making conscious decisions about how you weigh in with your conversations. And again, you know, these are choices that we make every day. We can weigh in and kind of go the biffo, or we can, you know, sit back and actually contemplate those words and and form our response in time. Um, So yeah, the REBEL acronym really helps me. I certainly know if I go into something I don't know much about, the first thing I wanna do, the readiness part is actually do a bit of research and put some questions down. For example, if I'm going to see a doctor, you know, I, I want to get as much as I can out of that time. So all of those um, elements of the acronym are, are helpful to me. So I thought maybe they'll be helpful to other people too. So it's interesting you say you want to be helpful because I think um, for myself, and I know a lot of people have uh, reflected the same experience over t- over the years I've struggled with being a natural introvert I've struggled with being assertive when perhaps I needed to use my voice and speak up and I've struggled being in that environment where I know I've, I've got to make small talk I don't know anyone there's a lot of social anxiety around that and I think your book is really useful in just empowering us to say yeah you can learn so have you got some tips for people who may be listening going yes tick 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 I am those things Yeah, well, look, I think, um, and I really connect with what you say about being assertive, because I was brought up to be a polite little girl who didn't talk back to her elders and didn't upset people. So I've had to spend the last few years kind of chopping into that a little bit, because I do like to please people. But in terms of being assertive, I don't always have the words at that particular time to, you know, come back to someone if they've said something hurtful or you know in my close relationship with my with my family for example so what I quite like to do is to take a moment and really kind of burrow down with myself and think okay why did that trigger me what what was that doing well I felt 
really small when that was said to me, or I felt upset because, and kind of label what has happened and label your emotions. And then when you talk to someone about how that felt for you, there isn't really an argument, is there? Because no one can tell you how you feel about something. And I always find that if I couch it in terms of, um, you know, when we had that conversation, you said X, Y, Z, this is how that felt for me. And I think rather than sort of have one of those almost sort of like you've kicked off an argument, that's opening again a discussion. And I find, so I wrote about that in the book, but I also use that myself. And it gives me such a great peace of mind as opposed to the sort of constant peacemaker that I used to be and never never going for something controversial because I was worried about upsetting or, or hurting someone. Um, so, yeah, I've, I've just sort of, I, I come back to people quite frequently after a day or two and say, you know, that conversational, you know, that email you wrote me the other day. So, yeah, I think it's quite legitimate and people connect with that. Mm, I love it. Yeah. The listening piece is really important too. I've, I've told people that I, I trained myself to be able to be in a room with people I don't know just through listening because when you ask people questions, then it sort of relieves the pressure on you to have to come up with something to talk about and actually the inquiry and the curiosity is the antidote. Yeah, so another really, that, that's a great, a lovely idea that you kind of almost you're setting up yourself for a cocoon, which is always a good idea when you're really wanting to listen to someone carefully. And as you listen to them, I wonder whether either of you have been in a situation where you're listening to someone that you sort of think initially, oh, this is not that interesting. I wonder where this is going to go. And then all of a sudden, you might ask a little question like, well, why did you stop doing that? Or, you know, so these little follow-up short questions are really important. And then suddenly, I remember this happening to me with somebody, I, I lead tours and someone I took on tour had, I always felt there was this piece missing. And he told me this story about, well, that was when my son and his family um, were hit by another car and the entire family died. Mm. And it really stopped me in my tracks as it would anyone and it made me think about how i'd kind of papered over this person i hadn't really seen that person until we'd had this quite intimate and really short conversation but all of a sudden i i could see um you know what what they were like what they were going through why they'd made these changes and that just connected me to that person from there on in so i think you know asking constant questions when you sort of think oh you don't know where this conversation is going or or whether this person is someone you really want to keep talking to just keep keeping that you know let them know that you're listening and mm. you can often be surprised. I always think that people tell me a lot of stuff and it's probably for this reason that I'm a little bit nosy <laughs> and constantly kind of ask those little diggy questions and I'm not really afraid to do that. So, yeah, yeah that's that's my hint about listening, just ask interesting questions as they go along. Yeah, I'm, I'm really feeling like there's a, um, a real kind of loop back to that question that I asked at the very beginning about shame culture and and, uh, mm. and camp council culture every you know whatever you want to call it around if we ask questions to first understand rather than putting conversations um and putting content out there which has a real sort of 
shaming or element to it, then perhaps they would we would add to the conversation rather than detract or or take away. And so I guess a key thing that I'm really taking out of what you shared today is the need to ask really powerful questions to understand and understand context and understand story. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. It's about how we we kind of um, let that, I suppose, conversational journey unfold. But also, I think something that's really important in relation to what you're talking about, you know, shame culture and um, cancel culture and that sort of thing. We've been in a really strange situation for the last few years, ever since COVID struck. Many of us conduct most of our conversations or more of our conversations, just like we are today, online. We're remote. I've been to, I'm sure you guys have had the same kind of thing. I, I've been to a few funerals online and I've had, I've done things online. I've been to a birthday party online. Um, and you know, when you don't actually see people face to face, there's a different kind of connection. You don't pick up all those little cues in their body language, the the twitch in their face, the the you know what they what are they doing with their fingers, for example. You don't pick up on all of those cues, so it's sort of like a flattening effect when we have so much remote conversation, and I think that's a huge problem. And that remoteness allows us to say, and you know, like one of those snap emails you might send to someone and think two minutes later, why did I do that? It's it's because of that distancing. And I think, you know, technology is so wonderful, but we've also got to be aware that when we don't connect in person, that sort of kind of negative creep comes into those conversations because you're just not you're not eyeballing someone you can't see the effect of your words so I think that's something that's really important to add to that shame culture cancel culture Mm. sort of conversation well I absolutely love the book Jane and I recommend to anyone to go out and um, and get a handle of this book because it's really really useful it's something you can put to practice pretty much straight mm-hmm. away um, and thanks so much for all of your amazing interviews Jane you've really given us insight into some very fascinating people oh well I'm sure you get to talk to lots of amazing people too and we're very lucky in what we do aren't we yeah we absolutely the people that and the stories you hear um, just for me has always reinforced that uh, generally we're an extraordinary bunch. I think there are people out there doing amazing things. Most of them not Absolutely. celebrities. Most of the most <laughs> interesting people are the non-celebrities in my opinion. Yep, I absolutely agree with you on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thanks so much, Jane. Uh, Do get the book Rebel Talk and um, head along to Jane's website because there's lots of other amazing information there. And I know that you're a performer, so perhaps you might be doing a show again sometime soon as well. Yeah, I hope Lost in Shanghai will be touring later in um, 2022 and 2023, the story about my mum's early life and also my career. So, yeah, maybe we can talk about that later in the year. (laughs) Yeah, amazing. Thanks so much, Jane. It's been awesome to have you on Broad Radio. Great to see you guys. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Winnie, we're over time. Oh, my God. That went so quickly. It did. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. And it's just been wonderful to hear your awesome perspective. Yeah, thank you very much for having me in your home. Oh, yes, that's right. (laughs) I hope you felt welcome. We'll be back with Broad Radio next Tuesday. We'll see you then.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.